We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. And welcome to Land Decolonized, a new podcast that explores the practical side of the framework agreement on First Nation land management in Canada. My name is Richard Perry, and this show is for First Nations leadership, staff, community members, and anyone else concerned with the governance of reserve lands outside of the Indian Act. On this episode, you'll hear some great content from our guest, Andrew Bynan. Andrew is an experienced lawyer and advisor on lawmaking and enforcement with the First Nations Land Management Resource Centre, and he's done a lot of thinking and advising about the COVID-19 pandemic and how land code communities are exploring legal options to keep their communities as safe as possible. I know you'll come away with some useful, practical information. Here is our conversation. And joining me now from Ottawa is Andrew Bynan. Andrew, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, Good morning, Richard. Can we start just by having you talk a bit about your unit within the Resource Centre and the kind of work that you and your team uh, does? Well, by all means, we, uh, my, my little team deals with lawmaking and enforcement as well as environmental matters. So, uh, working with the many uh, field staff across the country, we we provide support when it comes to lawmaking, the the, the accurate drafting of laws, um, and also uh, enforcement of those laws. There's a major challenge uh, all across the country in trying to uh, have. Uh, outside courts and even internal uh, enforcement systems built. So we're working on that nationally. And then uh, a a couple of specialists who focus on uh, environmental issues. Environmental management under the old Colonial Indian Act system had been pretty weak. So there's a huge uh, investment of effort to try to improve the quality of environmental management across the country. Yeah. And people often think that, you know, First Nations approaches are monolithic and that, well, all First Nations must be doing the same thing. But I mean, there are what, 630 some individual First Nations alone? That's right. And uh, we're uh, up in the mid 90s in terms of our operational uh, First Nations under land code with more than that exploring uh, the option of land codes and framework agreement. And even within those 95, there's there's huge variations. Prairie Treaty First Nations, Atlantic First Nations, um, First Nations in British Columbia that have been operating for as much as 20 years, some that are close to urban centers, others that are uh, quite remote with small populations. So in all of these areas of lawmaking, enforcement, and I- environmental issues, uh, we have to be very careful to make sure that we're tailoring solutions and working with what uh, the First Nation leadership and the lands managers want to actually do. So right across the country, I mean, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities are really struggling to adapt to the the COVID-19 era and what might come next and the relaxation of restrictions and protocols. How has this affected your work from a a legal perspective? Well, it's interesting. Uh, You're... you're, 
you're absolutely right. The COVID-19 pandemic sweeping its way around the world, it's its had a shock effect on, on uh, health management, the economy, people's uh, psychological reactions to, to social distancing and uh, uh, having to stay home so extensively. And it's changing the nature of our work. But it's been interesting to see how many uh, of our land code First Nations responded fairly swiftly to the uh, advice that was coming from uh, health experts and, and trying to make sure that they were implementing really quite rapidly uh, measures to ensure protection of, of elders, those who are in nursing homes, and uh, immediate recognition of the many individuals who are uh, vulnerable population um, who, who, who might indeed be be affected because of uh, pre-existing health conditions. So I found it interesting just, just how swiftly this was um, identified as a priority and then actions were immediately taken. In, in many of our framework agreement First Nations, they, they immediately started to have uh, reaction amongst community members, efforts to control uh, access to uh, First Nation lands, for example, and um, um, using the experts in, in, in who, who provide health services to try to um, uh, respond. And then right after that, we started to have the conversations with those who were reaching out to say, well, we, we actually need to take this very seriously now and manage our risks. So we want to explore how we might uh, deal with it from a lawmaking perspective. And um, I know there's a, a local First Nation community here I'm doing some work with, and they've gone the route of following all the provincial and federal protocols, but then more recently came in and developed a band council resolution to give them the legal authority to do certain things. And they're in the developmental stage right now with land code. Uh, right. Is that a common approach? Yes, it's, it's, it's a common approach. Just on that point you, you mentioned about uh, uh, neighboring governments, um, first of all, looking at what uh, the federal and provincial governments have done, First Nations, of course, need to and want to uh, govern uh, themselves and and to make sure that they um, enlist community support and build uh, responses that that really are appropriate to the community itself. But but having said that, uh, COVID nineteen as as a as a as a pandemic doesn't respect borders. So there's just a logic in looking to what's happening in neighboring communities, and so. Uh, keeping up with uh, the standards and the measures that are being announced, for example, by provincial governments, it just has been a logical uh, first step. And then trying to think, well, is it, should I should should we as a government and as a community just match exactly what uh, provincial authorities have spelled out and track those uh, measures over time, or are there some adjustments or some specific measures that uh, we as a First Nation want to establish? And you mentioned uh, for one of the developmental First Nations doing this by band council resolution. Um, Indeed, many uh, First Nations uh, have expressed the, the, the basic direction or the most fundamental requirements in some form of a band council resolution or publication on a website. Um, and in many cases, individuals are uh, willing to, to, to 
uh, treat the pandemic as a very serious risk. And even just based on a band council resolution or a, a publication on Facebook, uh, comply with the measures in order to to be a good neighbor and to help protect uh, other residents. When it comes to uh, the the risk for some communities where they have um, uh, roadways that are traveling through or uh, circumstances where there's a risk that non-members may come to visit uh, or even uh, members of the First Nation who don't usually live within the community coming to visit relatives and, and so on. Um, that's where the risk seems to magnify somewhat and for uh, many of our land code communities, they have turned to consider, well, a, a band council resolution or posting some signs may not be enough. Now we want to consider uh, trying to actually enact a, a law. Well, you've described exactly what's going on in this community I mentioned. Uh, <laughs> they did put up signs at the entrance and exit points. And uh, you mentioned Facebook. You should see what erupted on Facebook after you know some of these measures are taken. Uh, even though everybody's given enough advance warning, but uh, it can be quite raw in communities when measures are taken that they really haven't seen before. Well, you're you're exactly right, and and that's of course something that we're seeing uh, far beyond First Nation communities um, uh, in, in the United States. Uh, strange uh, reactions and and confrontations happening, and. That, that, I think, is something that First Nation governments and leadership face uh, to some extent, just like some other governments, right? And one of the things that I've, I've seen in the wisdom of, of some of the chiefs and, and counselors uh, with whom I've, I've had the, the chance to discuss this is that they start by carefully considering the measures that are uh, necessary from a from a public health management perspective. Uh, what is the latest on social distancing? What is the mm. uh, latest set of recommendations on maximum number of persons allowed to be in in particular properties? Uh, how have uh, uh, essential businesses operated, and and how do you maintain order in those circumstances? But then, uh, of course, they're they're also thinking through very carefully what on one half of the equation, what is needed in in my particular community and how will community members likely respond? So what I've what I've seen, Richard, which I think is is part of that wisdom of of making sure that there's a careful analysis of what really makes sense in your own uh, a particular First Nation is to say, well, for example, what what risk do we face? And I can think of one First Nation where uh, their um, First Nation land is located right next to or relatively close to a, a provincial park. And um, in the COVID-19 context, there's there's been... Um, uh, a bit of a migration of people in the good weather towards this provincial park, and unfortunately, a pressure placed on uh, the First Nation lands with with vehicles entering or people crossing areas of the land or even throwing litter around and and so on. And so, as part of the 
planning and the lawmaking, uh, that First Nation had to consider that. And going back to what you said the, 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 about the risk of confrontation and so on, trying to think it through as a First Nation government, how do we manage the risk of confrontation with um, individuals who aren't even members who might be coming into that provincial park? And so they, they thought carefully about um, establishing their own law, making clear what uh, is expected in the First Nation, but also reaching out to the provincial park authorities and to um, policing authorities and even um, the Ministry of Highways to, to raise awareness of what uh, they were trying to manage and to try to uh, address the issues long before these non-members would get anywhere near the First Nation lands. Now, uh, is this perfect? Is it easy? Is it just a matter of drafting up a law and you're done? Absolutely not. Um, as you say, there's at at least at first, there's many individuals who start with a reaction of, um, you're interfering with my basic freedom and I don't understand why and I don't accept it and so on. Um, I'll describe just a, a tiny bit different story. I can think of another First Nation where mostly uh, the chief was particularly concerned about uh, how to adopt measures that would make sense to members who live um, uh, or have lived within uh, the First Nation lands for quite some time, as well as make sense to other members who are in the neighboring city and who might be coming back to those lands, particularly during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what what I think was important was that there was very quickly a conversation um, with many of the members in the community to raise awareness of what the risks are and to discuss the measures that would be imposed by a law and to try to enlist uh, the support of, of certain members. And, and so then when the law was enacted, yes, to some individuals, it came as a, a bit of a, let's say, a, a, a surprise or a, a an interference with what they would normally do. And the first instinct was to to be a bit confrontational and to say, why are we doing this? And why do I have to uh, uh, limit my my uh, contacts with close relatives or, or uh, brothers and sisters and so on? And the fascinating thing, Richard, was that there were actually uh, a few individuals who were members of the community and immediately responded on Facebook or other social media to say, well, wait a minute, this makes sense. And I appreciate what is being done in order to control the risk to our elders. Uh, And um, I think that in other communities, the leadership hasn't been as responsible as ours in trying to make sure this is controlled. So let's do our part this is not going to last forever, and uh, we need to help out. So, you know, there's a very interesting point about uh, lawmaking, Richard, in that, and it's something that I've always stressed even outside of the COVID-19 world, and that is that um, e- you have to try to carefully design laws as much as possible in a way that, that engenders uh, as much community support as you can because then you'll tend to have understanding, awareness, uh, respect, and compliance for your own with your own laws. If uh, a COVID-19 law were to be enacted so rapidly or on an emergency basis, 
that you haven't um, had at least some degree of community engagement, education, and uh, um, uh, enlisting of support, then your your enforcement challenge uh, is magnified because you you run the risk that individuals will say, we had no um no consultation on this. We had no idea. We don't understand it. We don't like it. And, and then, and then um, your enforcement uh, problem is, is magnified. Yeah. There's one thing I I neglected to ask earlier, and that is uh, the option of using the Indian act as opposed to land code and which might be better if you're dealing with health or preventative measures or which might be better dealing with land and the environment. Can you maybe dig into that a bit? Yeah, it, that that's an interesting issue. Um, if you permit me for a second, uh, I've, I've, for a long time, I've not been a fan of the Indian Act because it has so many um, uh, missing pieces. It's antiquated. It's been largely ineffective. It's colonial in nature. What was imposed. it? 18, sorry, 1876 or thereabouts when it yeah, was first yeah. drafted? <laughs> yeah, way back to the 1800s. Yeah. And strangely enough, there's a lot of provisions in the Indian Act that are that 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 seemed quaint and inadequate 50 years ago, and they're still there. Um, so my instinct was to say at first, ah, COVID-19 laws, we, we want to do something quickly. Let's make sure that it's done under the more powerful and effective uh, system that is available under the framework agreement. And um, so so that was my, my first reaction. And there is that option. There's a way to enact laws uh, under the land codes and under the framework agreement that can be uh, a tool for controlling COVID-19. But I had to admit that the Indian Act in its in its bylaw making powers, uh, which are found in section 81 of the Indian Act, there, some of them are very old fashioned, uh, referring to things like uh, beekeeping and poultry raising, believe it or not. Uh, but surprisingly enough, the, the health ones or the ones relevant to uh, COVID-19 seem to be pretty effective. There's there's one provision that actually is about uh, uh, controlling the spread of diseases, another one about the observance of law and order, and another bylaw making power in respect of trespassing. Well, all of those are actually quite squarely relevant to um, uh, dealing with COVID-19. So, what was interesting as sort of an evolution in, in my thinking, uh, Richard, was that uh, came to realize, wait a minute, land code First Nations, as much as they have this stronger uh, and more modern uh, lawmaking power under the framework agreement, uh, the bylawmaking power hasn't been eliminated. So what our, our general advice has been is to say, if, if the leadership wants to um, really engage the community and send a very clear signal to members, non-members, um, and uh, businesses, then maybe use both tools. Uh, consider enacting both Indian Act bylaws and uh, laws under the under the land code and, and framework agreement. The advantage of the land code laws is that uh, they provide for much um, uh, stronger penalties when it comes to enforcement. And um, uh, it, it may be in some communities that uh, there's been a swing to use more and more land code laws, and that's now familiar to community members and enforcement officers and so on, whilst the bylaws generally tend to be old. Um, 
So you can use both tools uh, and just try to think through what makes sense. I'd be curious to know if there are any land code communities that have used administrative options to, say, evict someone who's having a party with 50 people every Friday night and ignoring all the protocols. Is that even a factor? Uh, it's a good point that, that uh, as a, a, in exercising governance over lands, um, you have a combination of law making authority, but also being the, the land manager. And, and yes, in some cases, the questions that have arisen have related to that uh, landlord and tenant authority or, or uh, leasehold uh, authority and trying to deal with uh, disruptive persons or those who are who are uh, violating the terms of their tenancy for example have, having said that um, I, ha- I I have to confess I haven't seen many of the land code First Nations turning to deal with it as an eviction matter in this short term that we're dealing with right now uh, where there's been, you know, disruptive behavior or or parties that are unauthorized, it's actually mostly been um, uh, considered an enforcement measure under one of the bylaws or the COVID nineteen land code laws, and and uh, having um, one of the senior officers of the First Nation g- go and talk to those individuals tell them, hey, you, you, you are now in violation of the law of this community, and um, I may issue a warning or a formal order uh, to you to cease uh, that activity. And when, when that is communicated, uh, there's usually a, uh, maybe not an instant reaction to, to, to behave differently, but what I've tended to see is that um, things may have gone awry on, on one particular Saturday night, but it doesn't happen again. The, uh, uh, you know, starting to raise those enforcement measures uh, through by well-respected individuals in the community uh, turning to, to, to issue verbal warnings with maybe some other community members weighing in and saying, yeah, you got to stop that. Mm-hmm. Um, so far that has tended to be the, the most effective means. Yeah, peer pressure. <laughs> Peer pressure, education, um, explaining things, catching people at uh, the right uh, time of day to 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 get them to think through the potential consequences of their actions, that kind of thing. Is there anything that I I haven't touched on, Andrew, that you think would be uh, important to to share or pass along? Well, uh, one one other area that I think is is interesting and noteworthy, and that is that uh, right now, uh, as with so many other governments uh, in Canada and around the world, the the focus and and uh, effort is is really zeroed in on COVID nineteen specifically. But as we were talking about the other day, what what this COVID nineteen pandemic has triggered is a, um, a realization that um, there needs to perhaps in, in many cases be some stronger tools available uh, to um, leadership and to uh, senior administrators in communities to make sure that they can handle uh, crises of various types. So, so the COVID-19 pandemic specifically is raising, triggering a broader conversation about how do we manage to, to prepare for what might be the next crisis of a totally different type. Um, emergency planning and uh, even considering 
uh, enacting emergency management laws so that uh, whether it be forest fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, another type of medical emergency, landslides, um, uh, road closures, flooding, any one of these kind of situations, the COVID-19 pandemic is causing some of the leadership to realize, wait a minute, we need to do more than react to a crisis when it hits us. We're going to have to um, try to take some measures, both in terms of emergency plans and in terms of emergency management laws to be ready for, for whatever crisis may, may hit us uh, in the future. Well, that will be a, that. That's a perfect segue into uh, what we'll be talking about in the next episode: the larger picture of emergency management. Well, it's really important work you're doing, Andrew, and uh, we'll be sure to put a link to the Resource Center website in our show notes. And uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Richard. Pleasure talking with you. The Land Decolonized podcast is brought to you by the First Nations Land Management Resource Center and is supported by the Lands Advisory Board. For up-to-date information on the land code, including governance tools, training materials, and much more, visit labrc.com. That's labrc.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening.